Anything else? Tonight I wanted to speak on this theme of walking the line. So the difference between discernment and judgment is such a fundamental part of mindfulness practice is the discerning factor of the mind, of the skill or the power of observation. So it's one of the really quite amazing capacities of our mind is that we can actually observe our own thoughts and we can observe the directness of our experience. And so I want to start by talking about this sutta that's very popular discourse in the Buddhist teaching called the Kalama Sutta. In the Kalama Sutta, the Kalamas were this, these villagers. It was a town, and uh, they were a popular city or destination for a lot of spiritual teachers. So they're kind of like Atlanta and New York City for touring musicians. Everyone was going there during the Buddhist time to give their spiritual teaching. And so, you know, people would come and people would go, and they'd say, hey, this is the direct path to awakening. This is how you... Uh, you know, transcend yourself, and this is, you know, all of these different spiritual teachers would visit the town that the Kalamas lived in, and by the time the Buddha got there, the Kalamas were a little bit exhausted by it all, and they said, you know, we're a little bit concerned, because every week we have a new spiritual teacher saying, hey, this is the doctrine, this is the good stuff, I promise, you know, that if you just follow what I say, then you'll be fully awakened, and and they basically asked him, why should we trust you? And it's a famous sutta, and I want to read this, his response. He said, don't go by oral tradition or by the lineage of a teaching. Don't go by hearsay or by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning. He says, but when you know for yourselves these things are blamable, these things are censored by the wise, these things, if undertaken in practice, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. These things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things, if undertaken in practice, lead to your welfare and the welfare of others and your happiness and the happiness of others, then you should engage in them. And so this is quite telling of the Buddha's whole method of teaching and his whole encouragement of what we're trying to do here. And really in two, two things stick out to me in this teaching. The first is it gives us some insight into what the Buddha was trying to teach. And this is that his primary interest is what causes human suffering and what leads to the end of human suffering. Stress, stress, disease, whatever words we want to put in there, what leads to that and what leads to the end of that? That's the primary aim. And this is when he says, these things, if undertaken in practice, lead to harm and suffering, or these things, when undertaken in practice, lead to welfare and happiness. And so this was his interest, and that's an important uh, part of this teaching. But I think most important or most interesting part of this teaching is that he highlighted how we accomplish the task of attaining welfare and happiness. What's the method or what do we have to do to get that? And the answer is a little bit 
different than I think we typically, especially in the West, come to understand you know, progress or spiritual growth. Uh, he says, but when you know for yourselves that these things are, if undertaken in practice, lead to harm and suffering. When you know for yourselves these things when undertaken in practice lead to happiness and welfare. So the emphasis was on self-examination. You know, and that this is such a huge part of the Buddha's style of, of teaching, of inviting us into the experiential sense of this word in Pali Sanskrit is ehipasika, to come and see for yourself, to sit down and to watch the mind, to examine the mind, to look at the things and the behaviors and the speech and the thought patterns that lead to distress, and to sit down and to look at the thought patterns, the speech and the behavior that leads to our welfare and the welfare of others. And he's pointing directly into our own subjective experience. He's saying... You know, how we each experience our world is unique. How I experience my world is formed through my environment, uh, social environment, political environment. It's informed through my neurobiology, my genetics. It's informed through early childhood experiences, my family structure. And that that's a very unique way that I see and that I view the world. And so it's essential. And one of the things that he cued in on is that we have to look and see for ourselves. We have to come right into the directness of our experience with an open mind. And to say, what is it? What is it that's happening right now? How is it? What's the effect of what's happening right now? And what's needed to meet what's happening right now? to see clearly into the mind and to respond wisely with the information we gather. And this is drawing our attention to this word kama, which we know the Sanskrit version. Most of us know the word karma. And in kama, karma actually, again, kind of against popular belief, it just means action. And so the Buddha is encouraging us to look at the directness of our thought our speech and our behavior. Because in Buddhist psychology, how you think is also an action. Volitional thinking, that what we spend our time doing up here is a behavior. And so, you know, the only thing that we own really are our actions. And so the Buddha is saying, you know, it's very important that we examine these things, our karma, our action. He says, but when you know for yourself. So we have to really uh, invite ourselves to do the hard work of looking at, being interested in looking at our lives. Contemplative practice, that's what Buddhism is, is, is reflection involved. And we do this all the time. I think this is the beautiful part of the Buddhist teaching is he said that every human mind has the capacity for mindfulness, that it's already there that we can exercise that capacity. And we do, we practice mindfulness oftentimes with other people. You know, when someone set, shares something difficult with us or a success with us, we say, oh, that really sounds great, right? You reflect back, you are aware of uh, how they feel, right? When I share with someone my own distress, 
and they reflect back, oh, that sounds really tough. That sounds really hard. And we come into the directness of that reflection. You know, so mindfulness is available. And we've got to do the work to sit down and to bring this forward, to be interested in self-examination. But when we know for ourselves, because if we want to know suffering, if we want to know the end of suffering, we have to know what's causing it in the first place. It's the unfortunate uh, dynamic of any healing, recovery, spiritual growth or awakening process is that if I want to let something go, I have to fully understand how it's not serving me any longer. If I want to let go of the past relationship and texting my ex over and over again and finally move forward, I have to really know that that's not serving me anymore. I have to examine that. Bring that into my awareness. Actively engage with that. To develop discernment, wisdom. And the Buddha said that our actions, our actions rest on the tip of our intention. So if we really want to look at our actions or our behavior, our speech, that we have to really look at first into our motivations, into the mind. One of the famous quotes of the, of the Buddha or the, that the Buddha offered is, whatever one thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of the mind. So whatever we think and whatever we spend time doing up here, that that is more likely to happen again. In biology, they have this uh, term, morphic resonance, which means that when something occurs in nature one time, it's exponentially more likely to occur again. But the first time is a miracle. So when something happens for the first time in nature, it's almost impossible that that could have happened. (laughs) Uh, Or it's amazing that that happens. But once it happens once, it's more likely to happen again. And this is similar with our thoughts is that, you know, why do I worry? Well, because I'm good at worrying. Because I've been practicing that, right? And because my ancestors practiced that shit for a long time. Because it's important for our survival, you know, in that we're not judging these parts of our mind, but we're discerning what's skillful, what's helpful, what's useful. And that whatever we think, whatever we spend our time doing up here, that that's going to repeat itself. It's going to form a habit. There's another verse in the Dhammapada that says, All phenomena, all experience is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a corrupted mind, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that pulls it. If you speak or act with a corrupted mind, then suffering follows you. And so, you know, we, we want to practice investigating, looking at what is, corruption's an interesting word, but one of the... Uh, Words that is used often in Pali Sanskrit is this word kalesa, which means defilement. And defilement is like a covering. It's something that, it's like a dye in the water. Uh, It's a lens that we see through. And so when our lens is dirty, we, you know, can't really see clearly into the nature of what we're saying or doing. Or when our lens is tinted a certain color based upon past experiences or how we've been conditioned, you know, we're not able to so much see the lens that we're looking through a lot of the times. And this is the importance of looking into the nature of our mind's perceptions and our mind's activities. 
This is called Dhamma Vichaya, which means investigation of Dhammas or investigation of things. The Buddha is said to have taught, he didn't teach Buddhism, he taught something called the Dharma. The Dharma can mean a lot of different things, but in this context, it just means things. The Buddha taught things, right? And so we need to look at the nature of things. We want to look at the how things work. And how do we do that? We have to know for ourselves. We have to sit down and, and watch, look. This is as Joseph Goldstein's teacher, Manindraji, told him a long time ago. He said, if you want to know the nature of your mind, you have to sit down and watch it. And so what are we mindful of? I think it's the million-dollar question. What is it that we are mindful of? Uh, To some extent, we're mindful of what states of mind, if we're looking at our thoughts, because this is such an important part, or the mind itself is such an important part of how we find ourselves in distress, If we're interested in looking in mindfulness of the mind and looking into the mind, what we're interested in is what states of mind are useful, skillful, helpful, wholesome, and what states of mind are unskillful, unwholesome, unhelpful, unhealthy. And we look into... You know, in psychology, we talk about many different patterns of mind. I've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, how we tend to find ourselves in unhealthy, unskillful patterns of narrow-mindedness, where we hyper-focus on the distress in our lives. And we, uh, this in neuroscience, it calls the negativity bias, the tendency to focus on what is the cause of our distress and to fixate on it. The tendency of the mind to recall old information, you know, to react to present experiences based upon past experiences. Some of this is helpful. Some of this is skillful, like driving a car. We need to know how to drive the car. Like when I come in here, I need to know the procedure for how I open and close the space. But when I meet a person and I react to that person from old information... It creates identity imprisonment, this kind of fixing someone in a place and time. We don't let ourselves experience this dhamma or this truth that things change, all things change. Instead, we fixate, we confine things in a time and place, we time stamp them. And then when we see them, we pull up that whole file and we say, oh, I've got everything I need to know about this person right here. We put them in a compartment. That's an unhelpful Sometimes, sometimes helpful, but oftentimes an unhelpful habit of mind. The habit of mind to ruminate. You know, the habit of mind to obsessively look for the causes and consequences of our distress. Where is it? Who did it? Uh, when's it going to happen? When's the other foot going to drop? When am, you know, when am I going to finally get the worst thing that's going to happen at some point in the future, right? This kind of catastrophizing and endless ruminating. And the habit of mind for proliferation, which is this spreading out, this building a big dramatic story, (laughs) building evidence for our anger and resentment. You You ever rehearse a resentment? You know, you ever rehearse what you're going to say to someone before you get to them? 
It's kind of building the story. That activity, you know, looking in the mind and saying, you know, this feels good. Don't get me wrong. I'm really going to tell them off, and that feels great. But is this really leading to the uh, lessening of my anger? You know, this, the pain that I feel of that anger. You know, the exhaustion of that resentment. So can we actually examine and look into the nature of these states of mind to see what's skillful and what's unskillful, what's helpful and what's unhelpful? So this is what we're mindful of as far as the mind goes. But how we are mindful is much more of a subtle and much more of, I think, actually an important endeavor. How do I bring awareness to these parts of my, myself? You know, how do I bring awareness to what is painful? One of the problems, I think, is in our Western world, we've adopted this tradition. And it's you know, happened over years. And again, we don't want to judge ourselves for being judging. But one of the traditions that we've adopted is this idea of legalist ethics, which is a sense of doing something for the purpose of being rewarded or punished. And it's fit, if you look around, actually, it's in our legal system, it's in our governance system, it's in our school system, it's in how we parent, it's in, and it is, it has an important, we have to uphold law and order. You know, especially as a society, when this, we have such a big and wide and diverse set of needs, we have to uphold law and order to some degree. But the way that this has been passed down is this model of, you know, this model of right and wrong, good and bad. One of uh, a psychologist named Kohlberg talks about this. He calls this post-conventional morality, which is the sense of we do things because we're either going to be rewarded or punished, which is an important aspect of morality. But there's this other piece he calls post-conventional morality, which is that we want to act ethically because ethically, acting ethically and in our integrity leads to our well-being. Not because we'll be punished or because it's good or right or wrong or good or bad, but because when we are actually interested in awakening, that awakening is the inevitable fruit of that being at the forefront of our attention. That when we focus on what is virtuous, you know, what is healthy, what is helpful, that those take root. And so we have this kind of divine judgment. And it's one of the things that finds its way into mindfulness practice. Is this, when we become aware that the mind is wandering, the first often inclination is that that, that's bad. That we're doing it wrong or that that's getting in the way of some other meditation that's supposed to be happening right now. And instead, ironically, the Buddha is encouraging us to look at how we feel that that's getting in the way of what should be happening right now. That we, the judgment itself is causing the suffering. 
that if we can be friendly and kind to the mind and we can keep an eye on it, I, I refer to mindfulness a lot like babysitting, right? You can keep watch on the mind and you can be caring and nurturing of the mind and you can be a little bit encouraging and disciplinary with the mind at times, setting strong boundaries with the mind, but in a gentle nurturing way. How do we relate to these habits of mind? When I see that I am caught up in a resentment, do I add judgment on top? And when I see that I am activated and emotionally full of fear and worry, do I add more judgment on top? Other ways that judgment finds its way into the practice is what I call record keeping, which is this sense of, you know, well, last time I meditated, it was this way. And this time I'm meditated, it's, it's not quite like it was last time, so I must be doing it wrong. Or we record keep for other people too, right? Well, you said this and, uh, you know, that goes one tally goes in your box against you, <laughs> This type of judgment of comparison or, or, you know, record keeping, of measuring. Another really subtle way that judgment finds its way into the mind is a sense of performing. And what I would call performing the self. And so in Buddhist practice, a lot of what we're trying to do is to untangle into... You know, watch how our different versions of ourselves come online. And we start to look at like how we act in different roles. You know, how I have a family self, how I have a teacher self, how I have a financial self, I have a sexual self, I have a friendship self. And so one of the ways that judgment comes in is we oftentimes perform or uh, feel like in AA they call it the actor on the stage, right? This sense of needing to actually, I feel like I'm being judged and so I react from that projection. Does that make sense? So I'm acting out what I think you want or I'm acting out what I think I want. And this is very subtle, and we can start to really come into this type of, you know, examining even these subtle sense of performance. And again, watching that we don't judge the judgment. That when we're performing to simply know, oh, a little bit of performance is happening here. What's underneath? Oh, a little bit of insecurity or fear. Okay, that's here too. Can I open to that? We also confine ourselves. I talked about forgiveness practice last time. Uh, and we, one way that we judge is we confine ourselves, like I was talking about earlier, with fixation to our past. And we confine others to past. Jonathan Foyer writes, Sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives that I'm not living. How do we... Uh, you know, how do we beat up on ourselves? All of the things that I should be doing and could be doing or I wish I would have done. The regrets. 
how subtle this part of ourselves, you know, this part of the mind is, and how much of a constant visitor, how much my mind tells me that I should be doing something else or I should be in some other job or with some other person or in some other geographic location. And it's almost like uh, Ajahn Chah says that we suffer in one place so we go somewhere else. And then when we suffer there, we run back again. He said, suffering follows us. And he says, if you don't know suffering, if you don't get to know it, then you can't know the cause of it. If you don't know the cause of it, then you can't know its release. He's running around in judgment. You know, all of the ways that, as he says that, uh, all of the lives that we're not living and the strain of that. So the invitation, the invitation of mindfulness is to open, to investigate the mind and how do we find judgment in all of these forms coming into that investigative practice? How do I look into the direct experience, into my mind, into my heart, and the emotional sense of my body and be more interested in asking questions than having answers. How is it right now? How is it right now? So, you know, stop having mindfulness be another way to attain some type of intellectual or conceptual knowledge that's going to finally do it for us. And that if I can just figure out, figure it out, write it all down and you know, stuff it all in. And I say this because I'm, if you know me, I'm this type of person. <laughs> I'm the six page of note type of person. I'm the, I learn the map before I walk the terrain type of person. You know, and the Dharma is a map. We need the map. We actually need the information. We need the structure. We need the form of the Dharma. We need the support of the Dharma because this helps us to discern. When you look at the map, you say, oh shit, I'm not supposed to be here. And I see that because it's right here on the map. But if we just get so attached to the map, it creates this judgment. It creates this sense of we lose the, the terrain. We're not walking the path. You know, we have the map so much blinding us in our eyes that we're not even actually able to see the beauty of what we're doing. And so what I'm trying in my practice these days is, you know, 70% terrain, 30% map. Get a little bit lost, make a little bit of mistakes, let myself off the hook, give myself a break. Uh, in this poem, The Invitation, that I read during our grand opening, the author says, I don't care who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you still, if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty, silent moments. So she says, I don't care who you know or how you came to be here. But can we stand in the fire? Can we stand in the uncertainty or the insecurity of our lives, the groundlessness of our lives, and, and learn to not shrink back? And we will shrink back because it's terrifying. But encouraging ourselves and supporting ourselves through 
Whatever we're experiencing is new. That's the beauty of mindfulness. Every moment is new. This has never happened before. And we lose this because we, you know, because we, we have to. We have to deal with money and I've got to wake up for work tomorrow. I've got to plan and organize and prepare. Yeah, but it's so important and this is what we're doing here is that we remember that every experience, you know, every moment of experience is new. And how do we hold ourselves? How do we stand in the fire and the uncertainty and the groundlessness of our lives and not shrink back, encouraging us, you know, encouraging ourselves? And so I want to read this. Well, first I want to talk about, you know, how do we, so how do we meet what is here? As we practice a presence, present awareness, mindfulness, you know, two of the, the qualities, and these are a little bit abstract and metaphoric, but it's kind of how life is a lot of the time. Two of the qualities that we're developing is the ability to give ourselves more time and space. So one of the habits of the mind is that it's learned to be active. Oftentimes we're kind of like a head on wheels and it's just spinning and spinning and leading and leading. And so with mindfulness, as we stabilize, as we do this practice that we did tonight, we relax down into the body. You know, we, the mind learns that that's a reliable refuge. It learns, oh, okay, that that can be done. That it's hard to slow down. It's hard to relax into the body, but... There's a protective sense of being able to slow down embodied awareness. This is the, we could say this is the quality of patience, being patient with ourselves. Oftentimes the difference between discernment and judgment is how much time we allow ourselves to be with something first. Can I see this clearly? Can I sit with this? All right, this has been something's been coming up the past couple days. I've I've been feeling anxious the past couple days. Let's slow down and actually see what's underneath that. There's some French philosopher that says all human suffering stems from the fact that human beings can't sit in a room by themselves. Giving ourselves time. This is most basic one of the most essential things that I've developed through this practice is just okay, you know, I'll sit down, I'll take a moment, I'll see what comes up. It's also really healthy for the nervous system. You think of your nervous system, it's an electrical unit. I mean, it's a system. It's got, you know, it's, it's veins going down through your body and the circuitry is your brain just running. You know, so we have to ground the circuit. You have to have that bottom, you know, little piece on the outlet. And of course, it's on the bottom. It's on the ground. So you've got to come into the body, slow down. (sighs) Giving ourselves enough time and giving ourselves enough space. This is also a little bit abstract, but a very essential skill of mindfulness is Timeliness, meaning 
you know, instead of going and sitting on the cushion when I'm hyperventilating or anxious, you know, practicing mindfulness, maybe I go for a walk, you get outside, open up a little bit, giving ourselves the space uh, to the container to hold what we're feeling. Oftentimes we develop space through other people. People give us space, so and people definitely take space from us. But when you process with people, when someone's a good listener, you have actually a container. You open up a, a kind of a dynamic where you can offer out what you need to, and that person will hold it for you. And there's something really beautiful about holding space for someone, right? I might botch this. I know we have uh, friends that practice Judaism in here, and I believe there's a tradition called sitting Shiva. Shiva? What is it? Shiva. Shiva. Where the emphasis is on the sitting part. The emphasis is on the presence. The holding of space for loved ones, often during times of grief, loss. I think that's the only time you said Yeah. Right? I believe so. When someone's passed. Mm-hmm. When someone's passed, yeah. So it's important, it's an important practice. You know, it's an important part of you know, one of these skills that, or one of these qualities that we get through the practice. Um, and then, you know, I want to read this quote by Ajahn Chah, part of uh, what we're developing through mindfulness is this skill of equanimity, which is the capacity to hold. It's the ability to be within our present experience without pushing or pulling. And it's an essential quality or capacity that we develop to be able to allow for wisdom and discernment to arise. Because often when we don't have equanimity, we're becoming aware, but instead of discerning wisdom, we're come, becoming aware with aversion. We're becoming aware with uh, the need to fix or change or control. And equanimity is the opposite. It's the opening up to our present experience without pushing or pulling, without suppressing, or without going after. And so I've read this quite a bit. Uh, but I really love this quote. It's by Ajahn Chah, and he says, Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What is important is only that you keep watchful whether you are working or sitting or going to the bathroom. He says, uh, each person has his or her own natural pace. So too, your practice will not all be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. 
But if you don't react, problems will arise and you'll see through them immediately. This is the happiness of, of the Buddha. I love that image of the still forest pool that many strange and wonderful animals will still come to drink from the pool. These are our thoughts. These are the uh, neuroses of the mind. This is the uh, insanity of the mind at times. That this is allowed as a part of, it's a part of the invitation of mindfulness. Mindfulness. 